And if you could turn with me there, we're going to be reading all, it was going to be all about chapter four, but we're going to shorten it up. I realized the last week I read and it was a little bit long. Uh, And so we'll just go through to verse 18 of Daniel chapter four. Now, if you don't have your Bibles, there's a Bible in front of you and that blue, big blue ESV starts with, Daniel starts at page 925. So you're probably around 927, um, most likely uh, in Daniel chapter four. Um, But uh, otherwise, uh, follow along with me as I read God's word to you. This is the reading of God's holy word. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me, so I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, who Uh, He who was named Belshazzar after the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, uh, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to the heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. That's the reading of God's word. Bow with me in prayer as we now ask the spirit to illumine our hearts in this proclamation of his word. 
Father in heaven, we thank you, O Lord. And we look towards your word and the history of redemption, specifically here in the book of Daniel, to take a really keen look at our lives. Where have we been prideful? Where have we been decimated? But then where have we been restored? And this story of King Nebuchadnezzar, we, we, we see, we will see, Lord, is a story of us all as we continue to be humbled by your grace. So I pray that we will come to you searching for your kingdom and your love and your mercy. And may be with this feeble messenger as I give your word to your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we're in the series, A Life of Faith in the Pluralistic World. Daniel has been a great book for us in that uh, it really speaks to our time today because we live in such a uh, relativistic uh, a, a world with many gods, a world with many truths out there. Uh, and I've entitled this message, Pride, Fall, and Restoration. And, 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 and what's the one thing that kills us all, that kills all of mankind? It's pride. Uh, even non-believers know this to be true. We find uh, cocky, arrogant people difficult to be around. We don't want to be around them at all. And most of us aim to live a life devoid of cockiness and arrogance. We know what that's like. We know what it means uh, to, to live a cocky and arrogant life. And we try to stay away from people like that. However, what about how our world tells us that we need to believe in ourselves? What about that? We find it better to believe in ourselves than to be arrogant and cocky. But is there pride there in believing in yourself and believing in oneself? Absolutely there is. This is why we find it so easy to forgive ourselves and find it abhorrent to forgive others. It's so easy to highlight the sins of others and completely neglect my own sins. And this is why I find in a lot of marriage counseling and even in my own marriage, this huge sense of pride from whatever camp you're uh, in. It's typically, it typically starts like this. I know I've messed up. I know that I've made mistakes. I know that I have problems, but... And here's that plank, you know, sawdust analogy that Jesus uses. But you, do you know what you've done? I know that I've, I'm a sinner. I know uh, that I've let you down in certain cases. But, but let me tell you what you've done. And I have this problem in my own marriage. When Leah calls out my sin, my habits, my behaviors. And again, marriage, uh, our spouses are like a mirror. They see us better than we see ourselves. And when Leah calls it out, my initial and immediate reaction is to come back at her and say, okay, yeah, sure, I'm a sinner, but what, do you know what you do? You do this. You do that. Oh, let me bring up the, the, the plank in your eye. And that kills her because instead of addressing something I did wrong, I tend to blame shift and I focus on her. You see, that's pride. And pride comes in so many forms. We, have all, we all have our own prideful things. This is why we fight. This is why we get so angry. And this is ultimately why we fall. 
In God's grace and mercy to us, however, he sometimes uses our life's difficult experiences to remove the blinders from our eyes, and he shows us what our hearts really contain. And he exposes, he he confounds our pride in order to transform us from the inside out. So we're going to look at three points here. And when looking at the King, King Nebuchadnezzar's end of his life, okay, we're going to look at what happens where, he's, where we see his pride, where we see his fall, and we see his restoration. And we're going to look at three points here. We're going to see humility leads to doxology. Uh, we're going to look at the second dream that he has and its interpretation. And then we're going to look at uh, uh, pride, fall, and restoration. Now let's get to that first point. Humility leads to doxology. Now, Daniel 4 is about a a journey from this huge sense of believing in oneself, a huge sense of pride and glory about what kingdom uh, this man has built, to then humility by way of an enormous fall. And, And the narrative actually begins... Which is interesting, at the end of the story, uh, this is actually like a, a letter of praise by, uh, to God by Nebuchadnezzar after his redemption in verses 1 through 3. So uh, it begins with Nebuchadnezzar praising God for what God has done in his life. Now, normally a doxology like this, and like we see in our worship service, comes at the conclusion of the events to which it refers to. We remember last chapter in, uh, in that Nebuchadnezzar saw with his own eyes the salvation of these three friends in the furnace. And there was this divine being that that pops out of nowhere in that furnace and he saves them. And there's no scratch on them. There's no resemblance of burning or or death on these three friends. And therefore, he writes this letter addressing, again, to the peoples and to the nations and men of every language who live in all the world. If you remember last chapter, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, after his first dream, he builds and he wrecks this huge statue of himself built of gold to kind of thumb his, uh, you know, shake his fist at this God who's interpreted his dream. And he says, what? I'm the one that built this kingdom. And now we see he's doing it again, but he's, he, he's calling all peoples, all nations in his kingdom to look at something different. So it's an intro doxology, a praise to what God has done in his life. He went from a prosecutor of the the faithful to the witness of faith. Isn't that amazing? This is a striking shift in in the life of the most powerful man in the world at the time. It is as dramatic as the transformation that you might find in the New Testament when it comes to Saul who turns to Paul. How did such an incredible change take place? Well, we'll learn that the king watched these three friends emerge unscathed from this fiery furnace that he made seven times hotter. And he saw God's demonstration of power. But the key point, as we read uh, the rest of this chapter, is that even though Nebuchadnezzar sees this, even though he's given the second dream and its interpretation, the key point is that he's not converted right away. 
The key note, I should say. He, he gets these miraculous demonstrations of God's power. And it can certainly stop people. When, when people see, when, when God demonstrates his power in, 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 in whatever miraculous way, many people will just stare at it and say, wow, this is amazing. Wow, this is a, there, there is a God, I guess. But true conversion can only be accomplished when you go through a personal experience of God's power and grace. And so what you see is Nebuchadnezzar, he sees these three friends saved by a divine being in the fiery furnace, and he marvels at it. But there's nothing that happens after that. Nebuchadnezzar continues to live his life. And that personal experience then of God's power then happens in chapter 4. In Nebuchadnezzar's case, the transformation required the stripping away of everything in which he once glorified. Look at his testimony. This is a testimony of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. He had everything he desired. He was content and prosperous at home in his palace in verses 4 through 6. Nebuchadnezzar was the Lord of all that he surveyed. Right? He was Simba in the Lord, uh, the, in Lion King, where his father says, whatever the, I don't, I don't remember the actual statement, but you know what he's saying. He was Simba, okay? Whatever he put his eyes on, that was his kingdom. That was his treasure. That was his glory. Yet, that situation of contentedness and prosperity was actually an obstacle to the work of God in his life. And so God had to address this mighty king if his heart was to be changed. This is an important point for us to recognize our own experience. You see, discontent and disaster, or at least profound personal uh, discomfort, are very often necessary precursors of spiritual growth and change. You see, as long as we're comfortable and at ease in this world, we're not normally ready to examine our hearts and institute deep changes. Normally, how it works when God invades our hearts is that he, 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 he causes deep pain and deep struggles for us to then turn to him. It's only when God disturbs the calm waters of our lives, then and only then, we begin to be ready to seek different paths to pursue. So it's often when our career hopes are dashed or our marriage is in shreds or a doctor confirms and announces to us that we just have months to live, that we finally are persuaded to become serious about spiritual things, specifically the kingdom and God's grace. And if that is true, you know what it suggests? It suggests that we should approach these troubled times in our lives with a far more positive outlook than we normally do. That's what it suggests. That if we know God humbles the proud and he uses that to then re uh, you know, uh, remold us and transform us, then the hardships of our lives should actually uh, be positive in our lives. We, we should recognize, hey, there's a reason why we're going through the muck and mire. 
These shattering experiences should prompt within us the expectation and hope that God is going to do something important in our lives. It's precisely through the storms of life that God will show us who we really are and even more importantly, who He really is. That's that's what's going on in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Now, we find that he praises the Lord in the, in the beginning. There's a doxology, and it's an amazing conversion. But now we kind of have to backtrack. And this is interesting how the narrative kind of goes this way. First doxology, then the dream, and then the interpretation. So let's get into the second dream. Why and how did Nebuchadnezzar get to this point? Well, it's this second dream. It wasn't the fiery furnace. And in fact, it wasn't necessarily the second dream and the interpretation. We'll see that. It starts similarly to that first dream in that he woke up. He called on his wise men because he was you know, frustrated and he was kind of curious. Remember, uh, kings and people of that day uh, wanted to find enchanters and magicians and all, this people, all these people to interpret the dream so they can kind of counteract that dream. Well, the king did it again, and he called all his wise men to interpret this dream, and he found himself ending up in frustration again. Then acknowledging that what Daniel did before in not only interpreting his dream in the first dream, but knowing his dream before he was told, the king went to Daniel again. And even after Nebuchadnezzar told Daniel his dream, he even shows this confidence in Daniel's ability. Well, let's break this apart. The vision itself is fairly straightforward as we read King Nebuchadnezzar's vision. The king saw this enormous tree that stretched up all the way to the top and it seemed as if it touched the heavens. The tree was both beautiful and useful. It provided food and shelter for the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. And Nebuchadnezzar was looking on and a heavenly figure came down and ordered that that tree be cut down its fruit to be scattered, its leaves to be stripped from it. The birds and the beasts had to now find shelter somewhere else. And they scattered in all directions. The tree was not utterly destroyed, though. There was a stump that lay and remained in the ground. And as we continue to see, and we didn't read this part, but Daniel hears this dream And he's greatly perplexed, and he's even terrified after hearing the dream. Now, we didn't get to this part, but let's look at the interpretation of Daniel. Daniel says that the tree was obviously King Nebuchadnezzar. His kingdom was so large that it was almost as if he was like this pathway to God in a certain sense. This acknowledged how powerful and how pivotal Nebuchadnezzar was to the world. And again, it acknowledges that God gave him this kingdom. God gave Nebuchadnezzar everything that he owned. And again, there's these allusions to the Tower of Babel, is there not? As we know, such observations end in disaster. And God will bring that mighty tree crashing to the ground and remove from its place its influence and glory. So what Daniel is saying is, according to the vision, 
Nebuchadnezzar, who has been brought up high, will be brought down low. He will not only lose his power and his glory, but it's interesting, his very humanity will be removed from him as well. He's cast down from his position. The king would be making his home with that of the birds and the beasts. However, when the tree is cut down, the the roots are allowed to remain. And this is kind of a sign of hope. God's judgment is not a final cutting off. God doesn't completely cut him off from his love and his mercy. You see, God's judgment is severe, and Nebuchadnezzar would experience a full period of judgment in this animal-like state as seven times, which means completeness. He would completely go through humility, if you will. Yet, when the time was complete, the, the interpretation says that the kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, would be restored. Now, this is what we should note. The somber fate that's depicted for the king in the dream is not an inevitable fate. It's not an inevitable fate. The purpose of the dream is to provide Nebuchadnezzar with a warning so that he might repent of his pride. You see, when Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, it's not that this dream is going to happen. Although it did happen, Nebuchadnezzar still had a responsibility. He could have demonstrated that repentance by doing what was right and showing concern for his own pride. Daniel even pleads with him in verse 27, and if the king humbled himself, then God would not need to further humble him. But if he didn't humble himself, then this outcome would happen. You see, in the same way, God sometimes presses in upon our hearts the likely outcome of our present course. Perhaps he shows us someone else who is further along the same path that are headed down and, we, and they're going through their own fall and we catch a glimpse of what we too may look like 10 to 20 years from now. You know, we've seen all around us what pride can do and, and how hard we can fall. As a pastor... Nothing is more sobering for me than to see elders and ministers who have now made shipwreck of their lives. I mean, it it, it really challenges me because you know what? I know that I am no better than they are. I know that I can easily be placed in that position, that I don't need to have a dream and a vision from God to tell me that, hey, pride can get you to a huge fall. And I can see it in so many of my fellow elders and ministers uh, throughout our country and even in our own, my own personal life. And you see, only God's grace will keep me from this similar track. Alternatively, sometimes God gives you a glimpse of the depravity of your own heart as you catch yourself thinking something truly vile. And praise God for that. You haven't yet committed that act, but in your secret thoughts, you see the seeds of that sin within yourself. And God sometimes uses those moments to give you warning and to say, you need to change your life and the life that you're living. 
Well, let's get to that third point. Well, what was Nebuchadnezzar's response? You see, he's given this terrifying dream that his kingdom is going to be chopped off, that he's going to become a beast seven times over, and he's going to be humbled. Well, what we find out is that a whole year went by to live differently, and Nebuchadnezzar didn't do a thing. He didn't do a thing. Instead, he mistook the merciful delay of God's judgment as a sign that the threat could safely be ignored. He even said, I built this kingdom. I deserve this glory. This is mine. Right? And before he could even bask in that statement, a sentence of judgment announced from heaven came down upon him. Before he could even think how he, he, he glorified his own self, we find in this chapter that God immediately brings him from king to beast. Nebuchadnezzar lost all of his power. He lost all of his position, being driven away from Babylon. And eventually, his humanity uh, became eating grass and living wild in the open air like the beasts of the field. His grow, he grew his hair and his nails unchecked like the birds of the air. And now there are some commentators who suggest that, you know, this is just an allegory. That this didn't really happen. That he just went crazy and started acting like an animal. But make no mistake here. This is not about questioning Nebuchadnezzar's bestiality. This is more about God's direct judgment. And what you should note is that when Nebuchadnezzar gets to this point, this is not a naturally occurring phenomenon. This is truly God's judgment on the man. And he's humbled seven times over. And that's when Nebuchadnezzar, he finally directs his eyes elsewhere. He thinks about his position and where he started. He, he begins to roam around his rooftop, seeing how amazing his kingdom was. He thought of himself at the center of the universe, the tree from which everything else received its sustenance. That's what pride does. It glories in its own achievements. It puts everything else in second place. It says, my kingdom is greater than God's. And when it does that, when we do that, this is why we are filled with anxiety. This is why we are filled with depression. This is why we want to die when our kingdom is not erected. This is why I'm going to cry today when, or not when, if my kingdom breaks apart, right? But where does his eyes revert? He was once looking inward. He was once looking and gazing and saying, man, I built this stuff. This is mine. And to being humbled. Now his eyes are reverting to heaven. And it's significant that the end of Nebuchadnezzar's humbling and his return to his kingdom was when he took his eyes off of himself and he looked upward in absolute dependence. That's the essence of true humility. 
God, many times, he takes our pride and he breaks us down. He makes us live in such crappy lives. All, a lot of the time, because of our own choice and what we've done, our sins got us to this point. And God allows us that. And he uses that uh, to then have our eyes look upward. True humility. You see, we know what fake humility is, don't we? I know it. Oh, how worthless I am. I know I'm little. And yet my eyes are still fixed upon myself. In fake humility, I'm, I'm caught up in my weakness rather than my strength, which is part of humility. But nonetheless, I'm still focused on my pride as I was when I was in my pride. I'm still focused on myself as I was in my pride. You see, true humility not only recognizes that I'm nothing, but true humility will always point to that God is everything. It acknowledges that I cannot stand by myself, but God can make me stand firm and strong. Humility sees that apart from Jesus, I can do nothing, but in Jesus, I can accomplish whatever God designed for me. The end result of the king's humbling was even greater exaltation. He was once brought low by God. He could safely be elevated back to the heights and restored to the control of his kingdom. And what is beautiful about this testimony is that this became Nebuchadnezzar's own personal confession of faith in Israel's God. And it is the last word that we hear from his lips in the Bible. Isn't that amazing? Here is this great and mighty king, the king who had owned one of the greatest and largest kingdoms in all of history, who constantly thumbed his nose at God of Israel, who now became converted. He now speaks of this doxology that comes from his lips. Praising Daniel's God. This is not fake humility. It's true humility. If someone like Nebuchadnezzar can be humbled and then restored, then surely what this tells us is that no one is beyond the reach of God's mercy. Not you. Not me. You see, Israel and we must not take this lightly. This message. In fact, this is very humbling for us and also a sign of hope. The gospel is an intrinsically humbling message, is it not? The only way for us to enter God's kingdom is with empty hands, lifting our eyes to heaven and confessing our desperate need for a Savior. By nature, that's hard for us. Like Nebuchadnezzar, we survey our lives, we, we survey our achievements and say, see this beautiful empire that my hands have wrought. You see, we, when we stand in front of our God, our problem is not just our weaknesses and our failures. Typically, our problems are our successes, our strengths, our goodnesses, insofar as they lead us to take pride in ourselves. 
Our goodness itself can be an obstacle. You hear that? Our goodness in ourselves, our, in itself, can be an obstacle to receive the message of the gospel because in our pride, we do not see our need for God. Our money, our successes itself tells us that we are okay. We're better off than other people. And therefore, it becomes our security blanket. The worst thing that can happen is if the Lord leaves us in our comfortable and, and easy life. That's the worst thing God could do. Because then we'd never go home to the Father. Like the very prodigal son, he needed to eat with pigs in order to finally run back to his Father. You see, why should God exalt the humble? Why do they receive his favor? Well, the answer to that question takes us to the consideration of another king who was brought down from the heights to the depths. Jesus accomplished our salvation and returned to the Father's side. And this is why the humble are exalted. Not because our humility is somehow meritorious. Not, not because, oh, God sees our humility and that's why we are saved. No. It's because the humble fix their eyes on Jesus, who was once humbled and is now glorified, instead of looking at our own accomplishments. You see, the vision of, the, of Jesus on the cross is the cure for our pride. It tells us that the sinful, righteous man who lived his life in purity, who was God himself, was taken to the cross, died a sinner's death, so that the proud would see their own sin and be saved. You see, we should never boast about our accolades or our, ourselves or our successes. You know, what we can only boast in is that our Lord Jesus, who demonstrated his own humility on the cross, went from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows so that we could be lifted up in salvation. That is the message of the gospel. And we need to all take a deep look into our own hearts. Where is pride in our life? Where do we see our goodnesses? And realize that those goodnesses can prevent us from accepting a message such as this. Humble yourself. The only way to do that is to look at the humble king who died on the cross in the most humblest of forms so that we could live. Let's pray.